When you work in educational leadership, you don't get off at five o'clock. Your mind is always on the clock, thinking of ways to solve problems for your students, parents, and teachers. On the Clock is your go-to podcast to learn valuable insights from education leaders across the United States. I'm your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, former White House appointee to the U.S. Department of Education, and we are now On the Clock. Welcome back to On the Clock with Todd Dallas-Lamb. I am that guy, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and today my guest is Dr. Christopher Bernier. Do I have that right, Bernier? Yes, you do, sir. Excellent job. It scared the hell out of me because I uh, it looks so French sounding. I, it, Americans are horrible at figuring that out, I've, I've found over the years. So great to have you on the show. You are the superintendent of Lee County School District in Florida. Yeah, I understand it's the ninth biggest district in Florida and maybe 32nd biggest district in the entire country. Uh, that's a big job. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be invited. Thank you. You know, when I was looking at your background, um, I was was the first thing that jumped out at me is you 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 came over from Clark County, uh, one of the biggest districts in the country, and, and take over at Lee in in May of 2022. You're probably thinking a good time to get back into a school district where uh, things are getting normal again after COVID, and then a few months later, uh, something happens that. It, that that you you might know might happen in Florida, uh, but it's it happens to be one of the biggest hurricanes in recent memory. Uh, Hurricane Ian hits you in September. Uh, what was what was that transition like? Well, first of all, I'm as pleased as as can be to be selected to be the superintendent. Um, this board is amazingly gifted, and they've got a great positive direction moving forward with student achievement and all things that our young people need to be in order to reach their highest potential and, and to be a world-class school system. But I will tell you that September 28th really changed um, what the entry plan looked like. Um, the entry plan was all about listen to learn, and once you learn, then be able to lead. Um, the leadership portion had to come much faster based upon the um, category five, almost, category four, almost five hurricane that came ashore um, on our barrier islands, making the Lee County School District ground zero and Lee County ground zero for this this horrendous storm. I, I'm a, I'm a Californian, and, and and we have our own problems. Uh, I'm originally from California. Earthquakes are a thing, you know. In California, we we like I think a lot of Americans we look at Florida and we see the hurricane season. And to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're on the Gulf side in the Fort Myers area. To me, it seems like most of the hurricanes sort of come in at the tip, the southern tip of Florida and curl towards the Atlantic. Is it unusual for, for the Gulf side to get as hammered as, as you were? No, it's not. I don't know that hurricanes have a particular path. It really determines by the latitude that they form at and then the steering currents. So there are very significant hurricanes that have struck all the areas around the Gulf, Gulf Coast from Texas all the way down to the tip of the Keys. And then there are other hurricanes that come ashore south, central, and even northern in Jacksonville. And then even ones that skip the state completely and go into areas like South Carolina and um, Georgia. How much damage did your school system suffer from how many buildings were destroyed and how many how much infrastructure well, we, was there? 
Well, we still have two buildings that we're still unable to occupy. Hector Cafaretta was a complete loss in the storm. It had a catastrophic roof failure, and then the rain and the, the wind took care of the rest. They are currently housed in a temporary campus um, in the backfield of another uh, technical center. They will be there until the board um, makes their decision related to the um, the building contractor who will be assigned to do the work to build us a new K-8 center out in Cape Coral, which is part of the Lee County area. Very excited about that opportunity. The other building that isn't back yet is the historic building that was out on Fort Myers Beach. So Fort Myers Beach Elementary has been reduced only to its historical building. We have a very few number of students who still attend there. And our goal is to return them to their buildings, um, hopefully as soon as November of this coming year, as they've been displaced during that period of time. The rough order of magnitude for us was about $300 million worth of damage, um, either by wind and rain or by the storm surge that, that came during, uh, during and after um, Hurricane Ian. How does that get paid for? Obviously, you always hear during these disasters that the president is going to initiate federal emergency funding. I'm guessing the state has a portion of that and the local community pitches in. How does that all work? Well, first and foremost, I have to tell you that we're blessed locally by an amazing legislative group and a legislative body. Um, the Lee County uh, team of state senators and assembly people, as well as um, others, including our governor, were immediately responsive and, and very supportive to this particular community um, because they knew we had been hit so hard. So not only have there been allocations made for all the hurricane um, impacted areas in the state, but there were particularly some dollars carved aside specifically for the school district of Lee County in order to help support our recovery. But it's a mixture of what you talk about. It's a mixture of state funding. Um, and quite honestly, a shout out to our Florida Department of Emergency Management. They do excellent work of funneling that money to us. But they're also passed through for the FEMA dollars that come from the federal level. And then, of course, our insurance companies pay directly as we demonstrate need. They have been responsive. I have to tell you, the insurance companies that we have that make up a quilt of insurance, we don't have any singular policy. It's made up of a lot of different ones. They have been uh, really responsive to our uh, economic needs. How long was school canceled for that? I'm guessing there was a few days in advance and you shut it down a couple of days before the storm hit. And, and then with regards to the two schools that were effectively destroyed, how long did it take to relocate those students to another learning environment? Wow, that's a loaded question with a lot of different, different moving parts. So let me start by saying that um, we were closed the Tuesday prior to the hurricane opening. We were open on Monday uh, prior to the Wednesday arrival of the storm. Um, we had good weather, clean weather. And at that point, the storm was still predicted potentially to miss us, even though we were still in the cone that the National Weather Service wants us to pay much more close attention to going into this hurricane season. It's not just the thin line of track, but looking for the cone of the impacted area. So while we were still in the cone, we still still believed that the storm was going to go north. We received information on Monday, late Sunday night, Monday on a shift of the track, which potentially was going to push it our way. We worked with our local county commissioner, emergency operations center. We knew that potentially we could get to school, kids to school on Tuesday, but we knew we wouldn't be able to get them home based upon weather conditions. So Monday afternoon, we canceled school for Tuesday, immediately went into sheltering mode, opening nine immediately, and eventually 14 shelters that we hosted for our local community members to evacuate from their homes and, and join us in safer environments. 
that's fascinating with regards to the uh, the shelters. What, what are those? How, how, who does the city provide those? Is that something? That no, the school district, the school district of Lee County provides those. They're actually our school buildings that are either yeah. not in a floodplain or far enough away from the coast will allow us the safe harboring of our community and provide them an opportunity for somewhere to stay until the storm passes. Uh, I want to touch on the community side in a minute. Um, talk to me about something that um, a member of your staff mentioned with regards to the, the hurricane, and I'm guessing with other issues that come along. What is the triangle tri triangle approach to problem solving that you you utilize? Well, the one thing I'll, rem I'll remind everybody is that that <laughs> when you say something the first time, it can get translated. What I always talk about is a three step process to emergency management, and I believe yep. that's what they're talking about in terms of the triangle. Um, you're always working your current problem. So, for instance, early in the storm, we were working to make sure that we were shelter ready. And then we had all the necessary supplies that when the emergency operation and county government asked us to open our schools, that we were prepared with water, food, and the other necessary materials for diesel and for generators, for instance, making sure we were ready to operate. While we were doing that, we were also pre-planning the storm as if it came ashore directly upon us, which it wound up occurring. Um, we were prepared with two-way radios and other materials so that if we lost communications and electricity, which we did, we still had a manner it means as an executive team, which I refer to as my cabinet, we still had the way to communicate with each other during and post storm. And then we were already starting to think about the what ifs. And that's always the hardest step in that three stage approach. You can usually see what the immediate need to plan for is and what the next step. But until the storm passed, we weren't 100% sure, but we had set the goal to open as quickly as possible. And you asked me earlier, we were closed for 17 days before we had all of our kids eventually back into. Um, educational environments around 23 days post-storm. Some students bunked in with other school school buildings. We had programmatic space to take students who didn't have a school building and place them inside another school with their principal and their teachers. In other cases, we used some very creative methods to buy us some time so we could buy build um, temporary facility to house those student bodies and get those students put back together as a school community. Um, Post-COVID and with Hurricane Ian, we just thought it was important to get back to the learning process as quickly as possible for stability for our students and our families, but also to help this community get back to work as well. Is it is it possible that uh, you mentioned post-COVID? Did did, Co did COVID make us better for events like this in some sense, in any sense? Um, I can't speak to COVID in the state of Florida. I was not in the state of Florida at the time for COVID. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, but I will tell you that what I learned about emergency management as the chief of staff in the fifth largest district in the country, really did help support me here as we dealt with this crisis and the ability to mobilize a team. And as a new superintendent, I guess one of the silver linings of a hurricane like this, if there is one, is the ability to galvanize a team. And we galvanized around making sure we always considered the human element. We spoke often about grace and compassion because many of our residents experienced disproportional impact. Those closer to the Gulf, those on the barrier islands, took a much larger hit than some of us inland. And we needed to be aware that while our homes may have power, others were still without it. So we had to keep in mind the disproportional impact. And then we always talked about it being a transitional and developmental process, that we always were trying to figure out the next step and, and continuing to run a playbook in, in order to ensure our children and our faculties and our community were held with grace and compassion 
but we got them back to school as quickly as we could and then held on for a while while other families relocated back to the community and took our time to get our students back in a safe, positive learning environment. Uh, I always, always liken uh, what, what you do as a superintendent and as a leader uh, to sort of being like the president of the United States. You, you, you have a plan going in, but you know, as Mike Tyson once famously said, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And so being able to adapt seems like such an important part of, of your job is, is, is trying to predict for whatever is going to come down the pike, but the, then also adapting to those the things that you might not have even possibly been able to anticipate. The adaptation is a huge piece, but I will always share with anybody who talks to me about this at any great length, like you are, um, the room is always smarter than one individual. Um, yep. It's about adaptation, but it's also about taking an individual input, trying to see how that fits, see whether somebody has a better idea about how to proceed forward, and then making the best decision as a group um, and, and, and really getting a thumbs up of the people around the table. And if somebody's thumbs down, really exploring what still activates their concern and how we can um, deal or help support those concerns and move forward with a plan. Um, it is a, it, I, I joke often and I use the words a lot, transitional and developmental process. You know, it, it took a lot of figuring out, but when you keep your eye on returning school students back to school, so you get your eyes on them and make sure they're being helped and supported, being provided meals, in some cases, clothing, you know, giving them what they had lost and, and providing them the structure and stabilities to get back to being a learner, not right away. But by supporting them through those early days, by by keeping your eyes on them and providing the services that they need, not just in the classroom, but in mental health and other areas as well, we were able to recover, I think, more quickly than some other areas that may have been impacted by a similar storm at different times. You have also have an emphasis on community schools. I want to dive into that a little bit. And I'll I'll note that one thing that you've mentioned today is something that reminds me of what I noticed during COVID. There's a, a little school here that focuses on special needs children in Annapolis, where I live. And I was really blown away by the role that they played during COVID when students were, uh, were, were homebound in learning, but they still needed the services that the school provided on a normal basis, which most directly was food. And not just the students um, that needed the food, but their families that needed the food. And this particular school was actually setting up uh, food islands for families uh, that they served around uh, around our community of Annapolis. And it, I wonder, first of all, we had, you had mentioned earlier before we, we started taping that there's really two components to community schools. Walk me through those two. Well, the first one is, I think, one we're most accustomed with, and that is having community members, parents, volunteers, business member, members, leaders, other individuals in our community taking an active role in helping to support a school. That can be in tutoring, it can be in career days, it can be in helping to read to students, it can be joining a PTA, a PTO, or a school advisory council, in our case in the state of Florida, and lending your expertise to our programs. At our high school level, we're blessed to have a very active business community helping us to design educational programs that lead to children graduating both college and career ready. So we're using our local industries and our local employers to help us make the determination exactly of what our children need post-graduation. 
The second one is a little different. And I think that's the one you wanted me to explore a little bit. And that is very specifically a community school where uh, not only is the building set up to do the education of the students, both from, from eight to three o'clock, but they're also set up in the morning to take on the before care as well as the aftercare of those students while parents are working. And then specifically in the case of one of our schools, Franklin Park Elementary, which is currently being rebuilt in the middle of downtown, we are saving some space within that building that's accessible from the outside for both our United Way supports, which include mental health supplies, food, school supplies, clothing, um, extracurricular or sports related programs for the children to belong to and the community to belong to. We're also partnering with our local hospital and, and health organization, Lee Health, in order to provide medical care at that facility as well. So that's sort of the wraparound services of a great community school where the community doesn't have to get in their car and leave their community in order to have really great services that may not be in any one location. And the school building provides that access and opportunity. I mean, it really does get back to the root of American education as originally conceived in small rural communities, which was what most of America was 150 years ago. It, it was not just a schoolhouse. In many cases, it was the church. It was the town hall. It was a little bit of everything, wasn't it? I think the thing that might be missing in American education today is that idea of the school being the hub of the community. As we look towards Franklin Park, Colonial, uh, Fort Myers Middle School and models moving forward, potentially, what we're trying to restore is that community hub for the surrounding families to ensure that the school is seen as a place to go, whether it's to get information, to get an education or to get the right direction, supplies and other things you may need in order to better um, support the children that live in your home and, and, and surround the neighborhood. And with all of that support and that and the, through these community schools, you're also facing an increase in student population, which is not something I'm hearing a lot about, uh, Chris, around the country. I'm hearing a lot of superintendents tell me that they're they're losing students for various reasons, but you've gained a lot, haven't you? We have. We've grown about 2,000 students this summer alone. We are right at about 100,000 students. We expect to go over that top permanently um, this year, and that's despite a lot of choice legislation in the state of law. Florida that provides choice options. Um, so we have lost students to that type of process, but we're still netting over 2,000 students so far this year and excited to have them. Southwest Florida represents a beautiful place to live. It's a great community. And um, I think the attractiveness of the state of Florida and the, the, those who live north of the snow line and have to shovel and scrape and otherwise salt sidewalks and other things, at some point that gets old. And the idea of living in an environment where you don't have to do that seems like a pretty good place to raise children. As, as a born and raised Californian, I can tell you living in, in Maryland in February is, is no bueno. What is driving that? Is it, is it uh, the economy? Is, that, is Fort Myers producing a lot of jobs that people are gobbling up? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it yeah. is economy. I think Florida is very attractive from the aspect of not having an income tax, um, a state income tax. So that that allows the dollars that you make here to go a little bit further. But I will share with you that the Horizon Council and other members of our Chambers of Commerce and other, other individuals responsible for leading the economic engine of this community have really done a nice job attracting good businesses and good jobs 
Uh, and clearly, when you're when you have a growing population, your construction trades also um, have a lot of work to do. And I see the school system as part of that. You know, one of our jobs is to turn out the very best student we can at the end of a K-12 pipeline that's both college and career ready. But the other piece by doing that is creating a world-class school system that is as employers look to relocate and find the tax advantages to coming to the state of Florida. They also find a public school system that will support their employees and most importantly, their employees' children. All right. So Chris, give me, um, when you're not educating and leading, what, what are some of your passions? What's your, what are your weekend activities when you're not uh, commanding? Uh, over? I, I, you know, it's going to sound boring, but I love to read. I love a swimming pool. I'm a big fan of what I call in Florida, the, hori the, the, the big flat horizontal. That's the view when you go to the beach. And you can see the horizontal line that makes up the far distant um, edge of the ocean that you're looking at. Um, but ultimately, and, and though the current uh, physical condition wouldn't say that it, it, it's true, I love the long distance backpack. So when I say wow. long distance, a couple hundred miles, um, but in the superintendency, I've not, find that, I've not found that kind of time yet in my career to be able to take those types of journeys, but really enjoy some point getting back out there to the wilderness that I love. What are you reading right now? I'm actually reading a book called Curious Minds. It's relatively new. It's about the idea between the neuroscience and the philosophical background of what makes a person curious. And, and it's a redefinition of, of the idea and the concept of curiosity. The reason why I'm reading it is because I think sometimes we don't delve into the curiosity of our young people's minds and allow them to follow paths to attain new knowledge that may be different from what I want to learn about, but really will help move them, move them as a learner into areas that they personally feel a connection to and want to learn. Well, I'm only Dr. about halfway through. <laughs> Dr. Christopher Bernier, I really appreciate you being on the show. Congratulations on, uh, you know, what's basically your new job and, and uh, navigating that district through, uh, an emergency situation and, and, and good luck with your community schools and all your efforts in, in the Fort Myers area of Florida. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the opportunity to brag about a great school system in an even greater community. <laughs> That's awesome. I can't wait to visit. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. On the Clock is part of the Stratagos Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, please visit us at strategosgroup.com. See you next time.